Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad to, that you joined us this morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to page, or to, <laughs> I was gonna tell you what page, but that doesn't help most of you that bring your own Bibles. Uh, everybody open to page 752 and let's see what we get. Let's just preach about that. How about John chapter 15? It is page 752 on this Bible. If you don't have one with you, there should be one of these around the room. Uh, feel free to take this home with you. If you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Uh, we want you to be able to dig into the word with us. Uh, Many of you know, if you've been here any length of time, you probably know we are one church in two locations. Uh, Genesis has this campus here in Carmel, and then we've got a campus in Noblesville. And we have staff that have offices at both of our campuses. And so sometimes it's kind of hard to get together and do things together, but we're intentional that once a month we have uh, an all-staff meeting. We call it that because it has all of our staff there, right? That makes sense. So we have an all-staff meeting once a month. And uh, one thing you may not know about the church in general is that we have meetings just like you have meetings where you work. And sometimes um, they're informative and sometimes they're just, they're boring. I mean, let's just be honest. We've got ministry stuff we have to cover and there's certain things we have to talk about. And so once a quarter, every three months, we try to get out of the office and do something fun and do some team building things. And this past week, uh, our whole team, our whole staff, uh, except Michael, who was on vacation, went up to Katiwi Park uh, in Strawtown and went to the archery range and shot arrows together and uh, learned how to do archery. And we do have one bow hunter on our staff. You probably know Ben Krause. Uh, and so he's at a little bit of an unfair advantage because he has his own equipment uh, that he brings. And so while the rest of us are up there and we're practicing with our little, you know, 30-pound kid bows, uh, you know, that don't shoot very far, they, we were practicing at maybe 20 feet targets. And I, I think Jerry Neville's bow is actually pink. Uh, his, he, he had the one, um, but we were practicing. While we were doing that, Ben gets out his crossbow that he brought to the range and starts shooting like half a mile away targets, right? I mean, Ben is definitely the Dwight Schrute of our team, like brings his own equipment. (laughs) We had lots of fun. We had lots of laughs. We learned some things. But the thing that struck me about the whole experience was this. The guy who ran the range, um, really nice guy, and he would uh, take each of us one at a time and he would fit us for our bow and he would uh, teach us how to set up our stance and how to aim and how to... Uh, knock the arrow and how to pull the bowstring. And then um, he would send us out to the range one by one. But before we ever got to shoot an arrow, we got out there and we're standing around and he's giving us the last instructions. He said, hey, one more thing. None of you wants to get hit by an arrow, which was true. I don't know how he knew that about us, but somehow he knew us well enough to know we didn't wanna get hit by an arrow. And he said, so here's what's important. Everybody has to stand on the concrete. And then when you're done shooting all of the arrows that you have in your quiver, you hang up your bow. And once everybody's bow is hung up, somebody will call out range clear, and then you can go walk out and retrieve all your arrows. And it struck me, isn't it true how we always save the most important instructions for last? And so we see that in the life of Jesus. Jesus' last message to his disciples right before he was arrested and tried and sent to the cross was this, abide in me or remain in me. That was the last message he had for his disciples. Abiding in him was the one thing that he wanted for his disciples to do. And it's the same for those of us today. Jesus is the true vine. He's our source of life. And just as a branch may not flourish, may not live outside of the vine, Jesus said, you need to stay connected to the vine. You need to abide in me or remain in me. And if you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And if we remain in him, he told us our lives will bring him glory. 
And so the message for us today is the same as it was for the disciples 2,000 years ago. If we are followers of Jesus, we call ourselves a Christian, we need to abide in Jesus. And so our challenge that we've set for this series, the four weeks of this series called One Thing, is this. We wanna make abiding in Jesus your number one prayer and your number one pursuit. In other words, your number one ask and your number one seek, right? So last week, we addressed the why. Jerry was here. He talked about why should we abide in Christ. And for the next three weeks of the series, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the how. We're going to have some very real, very practical applications of how we abide in Christ. So let's turn to our text in John 15. We'll pick up where we left off in verse 9. John 15, 9 says this, and I'm going to read from the ESV um, I, because I like, we like that it uses the word abide in here. Uh, your version is just as relevant. It's just as true. Uh, it probably says remain. But here's what John 15, 9 says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Man, couldn't we all use some more full joy in our lives? And then he says this in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says a ton in just a few verses. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just peel this passage back a layer at a time and let's look at what Jesus is trying to tell us. I think in just a few minutes, we'll get to the heart of what he's trying to say. So we'll start back with verse nine, the very top of this passage. Let's look at the second half of verse nine. He says this, I have loved you, now abide in my love. I loved you, now remain or abide in my love. Jesus is saying for the last three and a half years to his disciples, for the last three and a half years, I loved you. Now I want you to remain and abide in that love. So our point number one, if you're taking notes today, point number one in your notes is this. We abide in Jesus by abiding in his love. That's one of the ways we abide. We abide in the love of Christ. Jesus is telling his disciples, I want my love to sustain you, to guide you, to influence you for all the rest of your life. Don't let go of my love. Hold on to my love. Keep enjoying my love. Keep experiencing my love. Allow my love to infiltrate every area of your life and to be your motivation. And I, I think this is a familiar idea to us. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably understand this concept or this idea. Uh, some of you may be a parent or a grandparent and you want uh, your love to influence your kids or your grandkids. Some of you had a parent or a grandparent who loved you. And even though you may have some issues in your life, you may have some problems, you may not always be perfect, but you still remember that dad or that mom or that grandparent who poured into you and loved you. I want this for my kids. I know when I was 26 years old, my dad did something really special and really important for me. He sat me down and he said, Steve, I want you to know that I had very high expectations for you and you have met every expectation I had. He said, you don't have to prove yourself to me anymore. I love you just for who you are. And I still remember that moment, 20 let's say some, something years later, right? I still remember that moment. It was, it was influential to me. It was important to me. I, I, I remain in that moment. I want my kids to know that too, that, that dad loves them no matter what. And sure, we're gonna argue sometimes and I'm gonna be on their case about chores and homework, but that doesn't mean I don't love them. In fact, I do it because I love them. And I want them to know that love and I want them to remember that love. And we used to have this thing we did when they were little kids. And we would say, I would say, did you know daddy loves you? Yeah, we know daddy loves us. And I'd say, do you think there's anything you can do to make daddy not love you? 
And they'd say, no, there's nothing we can do to make daddy not love you. And I want them to remember that. I, I want that to, to live inside them. I want it to influence them. And that's the kind of love that Jesus has for you. He wants you to remember there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Jesus wants his love for his disciples and for you and for me to continue to sustain them and influence them. Okay, so let's peel back another layer. We abide in his love, right? Jesus tells his disciples, abide in his love. And then he goes on to tell them how to abide in his love. Let's look at verse 10, the next verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is always setting the example. He's not willing to ask us to do something he's not willing to do. And so he says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. The New Living Translation, if you have that, it says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love. Now, I want to take a moment to clarify something. Jesus is not saying his love is conditional, like that it's a reward for keeping his commandments, that if you keep my commandments, I'm going to give you a gold star and a big trophy, and you'll be my favorite. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we stay connected to his love by keeping his commandments, that Jesus' commands are like wires that connect us to the power of the gospel. So just like the wires don't have any power in themselves, the commandments connect us to the source of that power, who is Jesus. And so in order to stay connected to Jesus's love, to be continually influenced and motivated and sustained by his love, we have to keep his command. Now that's really difficult because Jesus gave over 200 commandments throughout his life and ministry that we have recorded. Do we have to keep all 200 of his commands in order to be loved by him, to be sustained in his love? Well, if that's the way you think, I want you to know you're not alone but it's not a proper view of Jesus. In fact, I think just two sentences later, he's gonna help us out a bit. He's gonna summarize all 200 commands into one command. This is the umbrella command, if you will, for which all of his other ministry, all of his commands fall under. So let's look at verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So to abide in Jesus's love, we love one another. In order to be continually influenced by Jesus' love, sustained by his love, to experience his love, it, it depends on how we love one another. Now, before we go any further, I want you to see I'm not just making this up. Right? This, is not, this is not my interpretation of this passage. It's a very logical progression that Jesus lays out. I can show it to you right here on the screen. Look, verse nine, he says, we abide in his love. If we're gonna abide in Jesus, we abide in his love. That's what verse nine says. Then he told us in verse 10, the way we abide in his love is by keeping his commands. Right? But he, he gave over 200 commands in his life. And in verse 12, he summarizes all 200 of those commands into one command. My command is you love one another. So one of the ways we abide in Jesus is to love one another. We put that all together and we see that, right? We, we, we abide in his love by keeping his commands. Summary of all his commands is love one another. So we abide in Jesus by abiding in his love, by keeping his commands, by loving one another. But there's a very specific instruction in verse 12 that I don't wanna overlook. Because Jesus doesn't just tell his disciples, hey, go love one another, and you figure out what that means. Uh, because we're not very good at really understanding what love is, right? We use that word to mean a lot of different things. I, I love my wife. I love my job. I love my team. I love hot wings. It's all the same thing, right? It's all the same word. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? I think uh, we... We don't really understand what love means. And so Jesus gives us a very specific instruction. He says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Love one another as I have loved you. The NLT reads, love each other in the same way 
as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus models for us or gives us the profile of real love. And he wants his disciples, both the ones present in that moment and those of us who came along 2,000 years later, he wants us to understand this, that the way that we are to love one another is the same way, in the same manner, in the same pattern that he loved us. Which begs the question, how did Jesus love us? Well, there's a lot of ways to answer this question. If you've read a lot of the Bible, you can probably think of some examples of how Jesus loved his disciples. And I just want you to take a moment and put yourself in that place. You're there, maybe in that vineyard where Jesus is giving this message. And he says, as I have loved you, so you should love one another. Love each other as I have loved you. And what do you think back? What does your mind flash back to? What moment is it? If you're, if you're Peter, maybe you think back to the time that Jesus came to your house and healed your mother-in-law. And, and that he, he loved you by caring about her physical needs and by caring about your family needs. If you're John, maybe your mind goes back to the very first time you met Jesus, when you were following John the Baptist, you were a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, hey, don't follow me, follow that guy. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so you went and you followed him, you spent some time with him, and he answered all of your spiritual questions. Jesus loved John by making time for him and answering his questions for him. Or maybe you're Matthew, who Jesus met when he was a tax collector and he was incredibly unpopular. And Jesus took him aside and spent time with him and then invited him to come into ministry with him. That Jesus loved Matthew by reaching out when nobody else did. And all those are great examples of how Jesus loved his disciples. But by far, the greatest demonstration of his love for them was gonna come next. It was when he went to the cross. It was just about to happen. And Jesus humbly served us by dying on the cross. He, he took our place. He took the punishment that we deserved. It's the very best way to summarize the way Jesus loved us. In fact, Jesus refers to this in just the very next verse. Look back at the text, John 15 again. And John, John 15, 12, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus love his disciples? Well, it's right there. It's in the cross. The cross is the single greatest expression of God's love for us. And that's what it says in Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his, love, his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus seems to be saying that love is an, an emotion. It's not a sentimental feeling. It's something that's expressed. It's something that's demonstrated. Like love is a way of relating to someone where you can show your love for them. And so let me just ask you, if you wanna express your love for somebody, what do you do? Do you, do you send flowers or bring a gift or maybe send along some encouraging words via text or phone call? Th those are all great. Those are great ways to, send, to demonstrate our love for someone. But God's love for us could be summarized in a single demonstration, Christ dying for us. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 3.16. Many of us know John 3.16, but we don't always pay attention to 1 John 3.16. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus loved us by laying down his life for us, by dying on the cross for us. And John says, we ought to do the same thing. We ought to go lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And what does it look like for us to lay down our lives? Because I gotta be honest, many of us say, and maybe we even would, lay down our physical lives for our friends and family. But you know what we have a really hard time doing is laying down our lifestyle 
for our friends and family, setting down our priorities, laying down our feelings and our emotion and our hurt. And if we're going to live like Jesus, what is it gonna look like for us to lay down our lives for one another? I think we have to view this in light of the primary thing the cross represents. So the message of the cross is this, we, you and I, and those that came before us, we turned away from God, that we were created by him, we were loved by him, but we chose to walk our own way. We walked away. We call it sin, and a lot of times we think about sin as a behavior issue, but sin's not a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. So the message of the cross is that our hearts were turned away from God. And because we turned away from God, we walked away. We couldn't save ourselves. The only way we could get back in a right relationship with him was for him to forgive us, right? Isn't that what the cross represents? It represents forgiveness. Ephesians 1 reads, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins and according with the riches of God's grace. It was there on the cross where Jesus' blood was shed for us for their forgiveness of our sins. And so forgiveness is the most tangible way we can love others like Jesus loved us. In fact, that's the second point in your notes if you're following along. It says this, we abide in Jesus by forgiving others as Jesus forgave us. We cannot abide in Christ and not forgive others. When we harbor unforgiveness in our life, we, make, we, we relationally disconnect from the vine. I think that's the point Paul was trying to make in Ephesians 4. He says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says that forgiving others is walking in the way of love. It's staying connected to the vine. It's, it's loving others the way that Christ loved us. He forgave us and we should forgive others. You know, as a pastor, I get the chance to talk to a lot of married couples who are having problems in their marriage. And every marriage is different and every problem looks a little different. But I can tell you that most of the time, the root of the issue comes down to unforgiveness. That one of them did something that desperately hurt the other, or both of them did something that hurt the other. But, but the other one's hanging on to that thing and refusing to forgive. And, and you can tell that it's the root of the issue because every time there's an argument, that thing comes back up again that she has never forgiven him for, he has never forgiven her for. Every time uh, th th there's, there's something that somebody is refusing to let go of, and maybe they've apologized or maybe they haven't, but both of them are being held captive because of this unforgiveness. When I talk to young adults, I often hear of moments where their parents have hurt them or scarred them by something they did when they were kids, and they, they can't forgive their parents. And when they can't forgive, it can affect their friendships, their love relationships, their job performance, even their grades in school. If you're a Christian, you probably rejoice in the fact that God forgave you, right? Like when I became a Christian, I rejoiced in the fact I could look into my heart and see the darkness that was there. I could look at my thoughts and see the darkness of what I was thinking about. And I'm like, God, how could you? I am so thankful you chose to forgive me even when I have all this darkness in me. And I rejoice in that. But so often with the same mouth that we rejoice to God for his forgiveness, we curse others because we feel like they still owe us and we haven't forgiven them yet. When we fail to forgive others, the same forgiveness that Christ has given to us doesn't flow through us. 
You know, one of the things it means to abide in Christ, to be the branch when he's the vine. If you think about the vine and branch analogy, water doesn't come from the branch. Water flows through the vine to the branch, and then it flows out of the branch into the fruit, right? Well, in the same way, the forgiveness that we have, that we received in Christ, should flow from Christ through the vine into us as the branch, and then out of us into others. Jesus talked about this. There's a story he told in Matthew 18. There's this parable. There's a, there's a man, a, a servant who owes a tremendous debt to his master. It's equivalent to many years salary. There's no way he could ever pay this debt back. And so when the debt came due, the servant went into his master and he begged for forgiveness. He begged for more time. He just said, can I just have more time? If I had just had more time, I'd pay you back. And I don't know how he would ever pay this debt back because it's huge. It's too, too big to imagine. And the master didn't give him more time, but instead forgave the debt. He said, you don't owe me anymore. And the servant was so joyous and he rejoiced and he runs out of his master's house. And you know what he does? He finds a man who owes him a few bucks and he goes and demands to be paid after he's just forgiven this huge debt. And when the, when the man couldn't pay him back, he had him thrown into jail. And this is how Jesus finishes that story in Matthew 18, 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jail, jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You know, it's really interesting that Jesus used a debtor in this to talk about forgiveness because the truth is that the word forgiveness is a financial word. It means a debt that is owed has been canceled. It's not a spiritual word at all. And this story reminds us that when we fail to forgive, what we're doing in effect is we're putting ourselves in the place of God. We're saying, I know that God thinks that person is worthy of being forgiven, but I don't think so, right? So we're taking his office. We're, we're, we're thinking they haven't earned it yet. Now, here's what I wanna do in the last few minutes of the service. I've put some cards at the end of these two aisles right here, at the end of each row in the middle. Will you grab those and pass one down for everybody in your row? If there's not enough in your row, there are enough in the room. I know you can find those. Just pass one to every person. I, I want you to, as we start this exercise, I want you to think about the person who has hurt you. Now, for some of you, this is gonna be really easy because you think about it every day. For some of you, it might be a little tougher. We, we did this um, as a staff a couple weeks ago. We did this exercise and the Lord brought to my mind uh, somebody that I worked with many, many years ago that I didn't even realize I still had to forgive. Um, but the Lord brought that to my mind and reminded me. So there's somebody in your life that you're gonna think about that you need forgiveness. There's a blank at the very top of that. And it says, uh, the person, let's see what it says. The person who has hurt me is blank. Will you write that name in that blank? Now, I just wanna tell you this. If that person is sitting next to you, don't write their name in there, okay? You can do this later. But for everybody in the room, if you can, I'd love for you to participate. The person who has hurt you is blank. Now, when we have to offer forgiveness to someone, it's always for one of two reasons. Either we wanted something good from them that we didn't get, or we didn't want something bad from them and we got it, right? There's a gap 
between what we expected and what we got. There's a place in there, that second line is for you to write that gap. It says, what I wanted from them was blank. Go ahead and write that in there. And what I received instead was blank. And you can be honest. I'm not gonna collect these. We're not gonna have you turn these in. Nobody's gonna see these except you. Now, one of the reasons that forgiveness is really hard for us is because we have to face the consequences of somebody else's actions, right? When somebody hurts us, there are consequences to their sin, to their uh, whatever they did to us, to their hurt. And we have to face those consequences. And I don't wanna downplay this, this because those consequences may be hard, they may be damaging, they're very, very real. But in order to truly forgive, you have to understand and accept what those consequences are. So in that line, because of their actions, I saw these consequences. Go ahead and write down. What were the consequences that you saw? Finally, what all this means is that there's a debt that is owed. That that person owes you something, rightly owes you something because they hurt you, they damaged you, you expected something from them that you didn't get and there is a debt that you owe and there's a chance for you to write that down at the very bottom. Blank, the person's name rightfully owes me blank. What can you write in that blank? Now what you'll see when you're finished is this isn't just a card. This is an invoice. This is a debt that somebody owes you. And this is an invoice that you could actually take to them and deliver to them by way of telling them that they hurt you, right? You could take this and you could put this in somebody's hands and say, hey, I want you to know that you hurt me. Here's what I expected from you and here's what I got. And because you did that, here are all the consequences I had to face. You owe me that. You could take this and you could do that, right? Hold that in your hand. It's pretty heavy, isn't it, for a little card? Hold it between your fingers. Experience the weight of that. It's a very real debt somebody owes you and it has some very real consequences. I want you to hold on to this for a minute and I wanna show you a story of forgiveness. It's a few years old now, but it's a really powerful story of how forgiving can make a huge difference in your life. Take a look at this. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother 
is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son, but the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself, and I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, yes, CBS News, Minneapolis. All you've done for me. Pretty powerful story, huh? Your story may look nothing like that, but you have a story. You've got a story of a debt somebody owes you. In fact, you have an invoice in your hand of something that somebody did for you and they owe you this. But here's the truth and here's what we see in that story. The person who refuses to forgive, well, they're the ones that actually end up in prison, right? Us holding this debt doesn't do anything to the person who owes us. They, they get to live rent-free in our heads, but we're the ones that end up in chains, right? You, you won't go out anywhere because you're afraid you might run into them in public. You can't watch that movie or listen to that song because it's too painful. It reminds you of the hurt that you have. You need, for your sake, to forgive them. Mary said in that video, forgiveness is for me. It doesn't diminish what they've done. And so you have two choices. You can hold on to this debt that somebody owes you and hope that maybe someday they'll come pay that back. Or you can mark it paid and tell yourself that I'm not gonna hold that against them anymore. I'm gonna give you the chance to do that. In the room right now, there are four tables, the same four communion tables. There are two in the back and two in the front. Each table has a stamp that just says paid. In a moment, I'm gonna step down off the stage after I pray and the band's gonna just play like this and you'll be able to go to one of those tables. I just want you to take that stamp and I want you to take that card and mark it paid. Now, a couple things, I wanna acknowledge a couple things. First of all, you may not be ready to forgive. I don't wanna make this a, a a contrived moment, a forced moment where you feel like I've got to get up and stamp my card, but I'm still going to hold hate against that person in my heart. If that's going to be you, I don't want you to use the moment this way. So just take that time to pray and pray that the Lord would show you how to forgive that person. 
The second thing is this, forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciliation. If somebody hurts you and it caused scars, forgiving them doesn't mean you end up back in a relationship with them, that they're back in your life, that you become a doormat for them. But forgiveness means you understand the consequences of what they did to you and you're willing to accept that cost. You're willing to mark that paid and say, I don't, you don't know that you owe me that anymore. And the third thing is this, if something's been hanging over your head, the only way you're going to get freedom from it is forgiveness. You may feel like hanging on to this gives you power, but it doesn't, it holds you hostage. If you want freedom from that, you have to forgive. Let the forgiveness of Christ flow through you and out into others. And in doing that, you abide in his love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for the forgiveness you offered to me, that while I was still a sinner, that your son Christ died for me. And I'm thankful for that. And Lord, I want that forgiveness that you offered to me so freely without hesitation. I want that to flow through me and out into the fruit that we see in others. Lord, help me to be one who forgives. Help us as a church to be a church that's known for forgiveness, for radical forgiveness, that we could take the consequences and, and we would hold on to those ourselves and say, you don't owe me anymore because Christ died for me. He offered me forgiveness. Lord, I pray that in this moment, you would help us to do that. I pray these things. In